What are the risks and opportunities for companies in a shifting regulatory environment related to climate change? I'm Po Yi, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. Climate change, is it fact or fiction? I'm not sure if anyone at this point can ignore the devastating effects of the rising temperature of the earth and the humankind's collective contribution to such climate change. The number of natural disasters, from floods to hurricanes and wildfires, as well as frequent and prolonged periods of extreme heat in multiple parts of the world, have added to the urgency of the need to tackle this accelerating global problem. With the effects of climate change felt all over the world, there appears to be a general consensus by political leaders, business leaders, scientists, activists, and the general public that something has to be done. But the disparate interests of the stakeholders among various nations, as well as within each nation, have impeded any coordinated efforts globally to achieve meaningful climate goals through enforceable standards and regulations. In the United States, Federal efforts to curb emissions and promote behavioral change to combat climate change have stalled largely due to politics. However, and perhaps not surprisingly, California has once again seized leadership on climate issues and has passed a series of laws that have wide-reaching effects in the way companies operate, including companies that are neither based nor operating in California, nor have any direct contact with California residents. Despite the political impasse, both nationally and globally, that has stymied governmental efforts to enact climate laws, public opinion is very much for taking some action to fight climate change. Companies are taking note and responding with their own efforts to incorporate sustainability and emission goals into their strategic goals. To discuss the current status and outlook on climate regulations, as well as opportunities that companies may have in addressing climate issues, I've invited two guests today. David Smith, a partner in Manat's energy and environment practice, who regularly counsels clients on climate policy and compliance nationally. And Chris Adams, co-founder and chief creative officer of Superconductor, an entertainment-focused ad agency that is at the forefront of electric vehicle marketing. David and Chris, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Nice to be here. David, what is the current landscape on climate regulations in the United States? Well, again, thank you for having us and grappling this important topic, and I appreciated your introduction very much. There is a very broad spectrum of views on climate, climate science, but the reality is doing business, particularly in California, throughout the country, and in fact, the globe, you will be dealing with climate regulations. Virtually all public policy decisions, spending commitments, and evolving regulatory mandates are viewed through the prism of climate warming and reduction of emissions. While there aren't a lot of mandates to speak of yet, California really stepped out in front of everybody else with possible exception of the EU, but even relative to them, with two new mandates. They're disclosure mandates as to both greenhouse gas emissions and what are regarded as climate-related risks to business operations. But while they're just disclosures, make no mistake, Folks are paying attention to the numbers, will be comparing companies to each other. And once a baseline is established based on those disclosures of numbers, reduction mandates will follow. So the California laws are effective now. They were signed into law by Governor Newsom. We're also awaiting a similar rule from the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is long overdue at this point and is getting bogged down by politics, reportedly. 
and several banking regulators issued new rules related to climate risk disclosures for banks and the risks involved in their portfolio holdings. Since the climate regulations to date seem to be mostly focused on disclosures, can you talk more specifically about the types of disclosures regulators are seeking at this point and some of the challenges companies face in making such disclosures? Sure. Well, some of the big multinationals are out in front and already doing this voluntarily. When we talk disclosures, the first thing is emissions. Everybody has some level of greenhouse gas emissions. They're regarded as scope one, scope two, scope three. We're going to break those down a little later. But the first disclosure mandate out of California and what will be included in the SEC rule when it comes out is calculation and disclosure of all your greenhouse gas emissions, whatever they are. It's good, bad, or indifferent. The numbers just are what they are. The second, as I said, is disclosure. And when we say disclosure, we mean a publicly accessible report that the legislation requires can be comprehensible to the average person. You can't bury it in a bunch of numbers and Excel spreadsheets. It has to be understandable. On climate risks, it's as broad as that term suggests. Are you vulnerable to drought? Are you vulnerable to extreme weather events? Is your workforce subject to extreme heat events? If you're in an area prone to new wildfire risks where power is cut off, what is the risk to your operations of that? Is your insurance going to get more expensive and less available? The idea is for folks relying on your operations continuing as normal, how is climate going to alter that? So David, why is there such a focus on disclosures? What's the value of having these disclosure mandates? Interests that are tracking climate want certifiable data. They've wanted it for a long time, but to be honest, the main driver has actually been investment funds. It's a big trend to promote green investment funds, to divest from what are claimed to be dirtier, less attractive things. And as regulations come up, Again, there's not a lot of mandates, but when funds promote a green fund, they have to be able to back up that it truly is, quote unquote, green, whatever that definition is to whoever's doing it. So they realize that in trying to assess their portfolios and the companies they're investing in, if they don't have certifiable data, they can't confirm that their fund is truly green. So they've actually been pushing the SEC in particular to make these disclosure mandates It's not just stating what your emissions are, it's third-party verification of the numbers so that they can actually track the emissions of one company versus the other and see how they're performing on a portfolio-wide basis. Chris, you are a storyteller. As a storyteller who's been working with companies to promote their strategic objectives for many years, and especially in the EV space, what are you seeing in the marketplace? How are companies communicating their efforts to combat climate change to their audience, which is a different kind of disclosure, but I think equally valuable? Thanks so much for that, Poe. And yeah, I think very complimentary and equally valuable. A lot of transparency and honesty that comes from that first discussion about disclosures applies to the marketing as well. You don't want to say anything that can't be backed up by the actions that you're taking as a company. And my experience in this and and what I've seen in the EV world goes back 13 years to when I was lucky enough to help launch the Nissan Leaf. Tesla had a $90,000 Roadster out in the market and 
the Saturn EV1 had sort of come and go in the early 2000s as a niche vehicle. But this was the first big bet by a big automaker that electric and zero emissions was going to be the future. And you can kind of track the basic story arc of sustainable marketing through EVs, because we've got over a decade now of how that story has been told. And very strategically in the beginning, you're talking to an audience of early adopters who care the most about the planet and sustainability and are willing to pay a little bit more and are able to buy technology that's not necessarily all the way there yet. And so the marketing at the beginning for the Nissan Leaf, there was a really moving ad where a polar bear comes out of the north and leaves this calving ice sheet with the melting ice in the north, makes its way through a forest, down the highways, through a big city, and comes upon a man in his driveway and sort of rears up on its hind legs. And then you reveal that the guy drives a Nissan Leaf and he gives the guy a big bear hug, sort of to say thank you. (laughs) So it's a way of saying the environment's important to you, the environment's important to us, and we've created the beginning of a solution that you can take part in. And that message wasn't for everybody. Most people weren't going to go out and buy a Nissan Leaf, but the people who had the money and cared about the environment, that message really resonated with. And so the beginning of EV marketing had stories like that that were very environmentally focused. And as you've seen that arc continue over time, even the work that we've done in the last four years with an organization called electricforall.org, four years ago, we did something with Arnold Schwarzenegger where he sort of played a used car salesman who was trying to sell the old way. He was selling gas cars and every point was about how awful they are for the environment, how the pollution and the bad air is actually killing people. And he was telling the truth, but in such an outrageous way that it made EV cars the answer to that stuff. So that was still very much speaking to the early adopters. But over the last four years, that's begun to pivot as more and more cars come online and are available. It's more, now there's an electric vehicle for you. There's one that does the job you need it to do. It's not just about the environment. It becomes about convenience and saving money and saving time and not having to go to gas stations. And it's come all the way now to where just saying EV or showing a car plug in is enough of a shorthand because of that 10 years of messaging that's come before. When you see a new Audi plug in, you automatically get, oh, that's the sustainable new Audi. Oh, that's a good one. How would this one benefit me? So you've sort of seen that full arc. And I think what you'll see as we get into some new frontiers for sustainability would be things like home appliances and heating and cooling and bringing electrification and sustainability into new categories. I think you'll see them take that same arc of being very environmentally focused in their initial marketing. And then I think on maybe a shorter track, getting to these stories of how it's personally a benefit to you and there's rebates and savings and things like that. That sounds fantastic. But it's one thing to tell a feel-good story and excite consumers to participate in an effort to fight climate change. But in showing images and referencing sustainability, pollution, emissions, and other climate-related issues, companies are getting into areas covered by climate regulations. David, you briefly mentioned Scope 1, Scope 2, and Scope 3 disclosures earlier. Tell us about these disclosures 
and how they may be affected by climate-related messages included in marketing campaigns. Are there any watchouts? Sure. And Chris, I appreciate all that. Thank you. I'll underscore again, there aren't a lot of mandates out. The California law and the SEC one are pretty groundbreaking and going to change the whole landscape. But it's important to note that once a company goes out public and makes a representation as to climate, green, sustainable, whatever, they now have to back that up. And they're subject to enforcement either by federal agencies or by litigation from non-governmental organizations that want truth in advertising. So a lot of companies have already come under scrutiny for making a public pledge of sustainability and not being able to back it up. So if they're going to say something, they need to. And so getting to your point, Poe, the kind of breakdowns, one of the things they may claim is that they're net zero on emissions. What does that mean? That means whatever emissions they're putting into the air, they're offsetting by generating zero emission stuff elsewhere or paying for it. That is based on, like you said, scope one, scope two, and scope three. And these are defined in what's called the greenhouse gas protocol. Let's just say there's an entity, it's a manufacturing entity. Scope one is just all the emissions from that entity. If they have generators, if they have heat in the process of producing whatever they do, it's the emissions, if you picture a building and whatever the emissions coming out of the building are, that's scope one. Scope two for anyone and everyone are the energy you consume. To produce that energy, there were emissions generated from a power plant someplace, whether it's coal-fired power plant, or actually if it comes from a solar array, there are no emissions. But scope two is just the emissions, if any, related to the energy you consume. Scope three, and this is where the political controversy is, it is literally everything else. It's your supply chain. They call it upstream and downstream. Whatever that manufacturing entity produces, everything that goes into producing that, including their employees' commutes, their facilities, their supply chain, and then on the upper end, when they produce something and sell it, what's it used for, who consumes it, and what are the emissions related to that? So as you can imagine, scope three is incredibly broad. It's very difficult to define, and it's actually intentionally duplicative. Your scope three emissions are actually someone else's scope one and scope two emissions. There is a huge challenge for you, Chris, and your team to try to make sense out of all this so that general consumers can understand what net zero means, what carbon offsets means, what emission reduction means. These are hard concepts to understand. While environmental lawyers and activists and government officials might know what these terms mean, the general public does not. How do you, Chris, as a storyteller, communicate climate-focused messages in a way that is meaningful to consumers? Also, have you seen any hesitation from clients, from marketers, in talking about these issues because of the complexity of using words that they might not be able to describe adequately or to back up? Yeah, it's a really good question. When I think back on it for the last... 20 whatever years of being in the boardrooms of Fortune 100 companies in all different categories, I think I would first want to say the vast majority of the people that I've worked with have been really good people trying to make the right decisions personally and on behalf of their companies. And I think they're all seeing that not only is it personal that they want to enact these changes and market these messages to do better, but I think more and more you're seeing that it aligns 
perfectly with their business future. They understand that their future is wrapped up in learning to do these things right and do them differently than we've done them in the past. For sure, any amount of statements that become legal in nature become complicated in, in how we talk to consumers about them. So I think it's always trying to distill the intent of what all of those words means down to what's in it for the person at home. And that generally comes down to cleaner air for me and my children, taking an active role in trying to address the changes that we're seeing in the planet, married with potential financial and convenience benefits, that these things over time will save me money, that these things over time will make my life more convenient and better, that they come part and parcel with advances in technology that, that make the actual products better. And I would say, just going back to the first thing, I think it's actually great for the companies that are trying to do a good job on these fronts that now there is a government entity and real numbers being assigned to how good a job everybody's doing. And I think that the companies that are good at it will see this as an advantage in that they can do a better job of meeting these goals and meeting the moment and be rewarded for that in some way. And it comes back to us in terms of when we put out marketing messages, we like to do a slide sometimes that just says belief and behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you have a belief that you're trying to get to net zero or that you're working to get so many carbon emissions saved, what are the things that you're going to do to live up to that? And if it's just, we're going to put out a marketing message, it's not enough. You need two, three, five other things you're actively doing as a company to really support that belief for us to then say, okay, you've really backed this up. Now we can go with confidence out into the market with this message. Like you said, Chris, talking about what a company does to fight climate change could really turn into a strategic opportunity for such company because you can create a more meaningful relationship with consumers since consumers care. We all care or should care as global citizens. Yeah, if I could happily follow up and underline that point, we actually did some research recently for one of our clients. You think about how polarized the country is on so many issues right now, and you think about how polarized the world is on a lot of issues right now. There's three simple stats that really make that point and underline the opportunity. In this really fragmented world, 74% of Americans support the U.S. participation in international efforts to reduce the effect of climate change. That's across every type of political belief. 67% of Americans say actually that the country should prioritize developing alternative energy like wind and solar. And very importantly to this conversation, 67% of Americans think brands are super important in that. They say, large business and corporations are actually doing too little to reduce the effects of climate change. So if you can be one of the companies that is living up to those regulations better than your competitors, you're not just doing some good for the world, you're creating a business edge and a marketing edge in the process. And then it just needs to go to the right storytellers who can articulate that in the most hopeful, optimistic, and powerful way. I totally agree. David, companies should see this as an opportunity and audit their own practices and see what they are doing so they can, one, disclose properly, and two, to allow marketers to talk about the company's efforts in a way that is substantiated. 
I agree with everything Chris said. With our clients, as we're counseling on these things, there's the public perception stuff, but it can become a very different question still when you're talking about what are they willing to pay for? Say a new home with a solar array and storage in it can add a significant premium to the house. They want to be part of a green community. So the overall marketing of the community is a big selling attraction that developers are going towards. But when they do market research on, okay, what are you willing to pay for to upgrade your home for these? We're still seeing very mixed messages. The reality is though, we are seeing strong, strong numbers, particularly out of the younger generations, Gen X, Gen Z, both in terms of their consumer habits, as well as their employment expectations of the companies they're going to work for. Companies actually are having raised eyebrows at the questions they're being asked to respond to in terms of, well, if I'm going to come work for you, what is the company's ethic and focus in terms of climate, in terms of sustainability, in terms of diversity and inclusion? So these mandates, Poe, going back to where we started, even though they're just disclosures, the idea is to establish common metrics by which performance can be compared. And even with disclosures, I'll add, we still have a long way to go because there is no uniform perspective on what metrics should be utilized. How do we count? And what is the spectrum on which something's good, bad, needs improvement? And so it's going to be, for the time being, comparison of company X versus company Y and their numbers. David and Chris, a wonderful discussion on climate issues. We have a tradition in this podcast, which is just before we end, we ask each guest to provide a tip. I'd like to ask you, Chris, what are some of the tips for companies to speak about what they are doing to fight climate change in a way that makes sense to consumers? I think the biggest tip for companies and marketers to remember when they're messaging to people is to keep people a part of that message. What's in it for the person at home? Great that you're doing something for the environment or sustainability. You're supposed to. What's in it for me? How is this a movement that I can help be a part of? And how does it benefit my life? Great tip. David, companies want to do all these things to comply with the disclosure mandates. What would you say is your tip for companies navigating this constantly changing regulatory landscape? as well as being able to support marketing in their goal of being able to speak to consumers about what they're doing. Well, respectfully, Poe, I disagree with your premise. I think there's a lot of companies out there that don't want to be doing this. <laughs> and I agree with your premise. They want to be in compliance. They don't want to be found out of compliance, particularly in the private sector. They're used to having their books be closed and we will monitor what we're doing and either we're performing or we're not. And I, I'm just here to say that era has passed. And I think that's maybe one of the biggest things about climate generally. You're going to see regulations apply in ways that things have never done before in the scope of public disclosure. So my tip to one and all, those who want to and those who don't, is start. Start counting, start assessing your operations, start knowing what your emissions are. And if you don't want to disclose them yet, don't. And if you don't want to make a, a net zero pledge to the public yet, don't. But if all of a sudden you were put in a corner and for whatever reason were forced to make those disclosures, you need to know what they would be. And again, respectfully, you will want to know what 
they will be relative to your top competitors. How do your numbers measure up? Are you better? Are you quote unquote worse? Because even if the regulators aren't going to come after you, there will be interest groups who will. So start. Thank you, David and Chris, for joining me today to take a closer look at these complex issues and for sharing your perspectives on what the risks and opportunities are for companies to address climate issues through marketing. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. To learn more about why all companies should take note of climate disclosure mandates, please find a recent article written by David. For those who are interested in learning more about superconductors' work crafting sustainable marketing campaigns, please visit superconductor.com. And as always, feel welcome to reach out with any questions. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please subscribe to Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat to receive updates about future episodes. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.